0: Thank you so much, Sam. Uh, extremely excited to, uh, chat. I've been looking forward to it for a long time and, uh, learn more about sweet and what you've been doing here at missing labs and all the tech and secret sauce that makes it work. Logan,
1: thanks for having me. I'm excited to meet you and excited to be on and tell you all about it.
0: Awesome. Um, cool. I, I think maybe we, I, I did just got done with an awesome chat, uh, with uh, some of the other founders and kind of did a high level overview of like the general suite and Missin and like the overall ecosystem. But I would love to just to like dive like into the tech. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so maybe from, I think we both kind of share like the philosophy of like breaking things down from first principles. Um, so starting or jumping off that, what do you feel like are like some of the biggest bottlenecks of just like blockchains in general today
1: yeah i think that's a great question and a great starting point so really we look at there being three different places where there are bottlenecks so i'm going to describe the classical blockchain architecture which sort of is sort of painting other stuff out there with a very broad brush describe some blockchains but not others but i think it's sort of the classical design i think more or less uh will give a good overview of where where the bottlenecks are and where sweet is doing things differently so the first one is of course um, consensus so you have transactions that are coming in, sometimes they're related to each other, sometimes they're not. But the, in the classical architecture, you take all these transactions, you put them through full Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus, and you establish a total ordering on those transactions. Um, so that's that's thing number one. Um, we know a lot of workloads don't actually require full consensus, but you know, we order them anyway. And this makes sense, like this is how the classic state replication, like a state machine replication paradigm works. So of course people do it this way, but uh, you know, it's not necessarily the most, it's the most straightforward architecture. It's the easiest to reason about the safety of, but it's not necessarily the fastest. Okay. Then the transactions are done being ordered. Now you execute them. Usually this is also done sequentially. Um, Again, it doesn't have to be. Some folks do, uh, do parallel execution, either optimistic or other forms, but like classically, this is what you do. And definitely like the result you need to have is that the execution result needs to be equivalent to the sequential ordering, uh, even if you optimize by, you know, achieving and, you know, doing a parallel when you can tell that it won't make a difference. Um, and then the third thing is, um, you know, there's a blockchain. People, you don't just want to execute transactions. You want people to be able to read the results and read them in a trusted way. So usually you take the result of executing transactions and in a classic account based blockchain, you know, it's maybe a Merkle tree where accounts are at the leaves. You apply these rights to the leaves and then you bubble them up and compute a new Merkle state root. And this is a bottleneck because as the state gets bigger, there are more and more leaves, there are more intermediate nodes. Um, and you, know, you, usually, you want this whole Merkle tree to be on a single machine usually, uh, or it's not going to be fast. And so this too is a bottleneck. So I think these are the three areas where um, in the conventional blockchain architecture where you really have points of contention, you have operations where you need to look at the whole global state, or you have everything in memory, or you need to have an operation that's just fundamentally sequential.
0: Awesome. Let's just keep rolling from there and uh, kind of break those three apart. Um, So starting with consensus, uh, how is SWE um, kind of doing
1: consensus differently from kind of the traditional blockchain model? So with Sui, we take a step back and say, okay, fundamentally, transactions are doing computation and different kinds of computations have different characteristics. Some computations need ordering, like if you and I are both hitting a DEX or participating in an auction, then we need to know whether your bid came first or mine or who gets what price on the trade. But there are other kinds of computations that are commutative. If I'm transferring, if I'm transferring money to, to you and then someone else is transferring money to someone else, there's no reason that those transactions need to be ordered. And so in Sweeb, we have a way to recognize whether a transaction is going to commute with all other transactions that, um, that are sent by it that don't touch the same objects as that transaction. So taking a step back and to talk about how that's possible, Sui's data model is different from other blockchains in that it's not account-based, it's object-based. The the structure of the global storage is there's a map from object IDs to objects, and every object has ownership metadata embedded in it. An object can say, I'm owned by this address, uh, or it can say, I'm shared. And if it's owned by an address, only a transaction signed by the the public key associated with that, the private key associated with that address uh, can actually use that object in a transaction. So if we look at a, at, and then when you have a transaction, it says, "I'm going to use this object ID and that object ID, and I'm using it in the shared mode or the the single owner mode." And then there's authentication logic that checks uh, whether this this information this signer actually has a permission to use this object, and then uh, you know it goes off and executes the transaction. And so what this lets us do is, when we look at a transaction, we can see, is it only using single owner objects? And if it is, that means it actually doesn't need consensus because the only one who can send other transactions is the person who signed this transaction. And then it can, this transaction is gonna commute with any transactions that don't touch that same set of objects. And so we can skip the ordering step and we use this systems primitive called Byzantine consistent broadcast where we basically just check that this other person isn't equivocating or trying to send another transaction that's doing different things with the same set of objects. And then we can execute and commit that transaction much faster than going through full consensus. And does that still have to go through the two-thirds plus one vote? or It still has to have two-thirds plus one votes, but it doesn't have to be ordered. So the way it works operationally is I have my transaction. I send it. I sign it. I send it to 2F plus one validators. They sign it. I get back the results on the signed transaction. When I send it to them and they sign it, they have an internal lock database where they say, I've seen this transaction from Logan with this hash. And then if and then they set that lock. And if they see another transaction that's trying to touch the same objects, they're going to say, "Hey, I'm not going to sign that. Like I've already seen this transaction from Logan that's trying to touch his Crypto Kitty or whatever." Then the user gets back these signatures. It aggregates them into an artifact we call a certificate. This is two F plus one signatures from the or two F plus one by stake uh, signatures on the the transaction. And then it resubmits the certificate, and that's the point at which execution actually happens, and you get the results.
0: Gotcha. Does is there in The idea is that by not ordering, you reduce the latency uh, by uh, not having to order that specific transactions because it's not contentious for uh, something that um, it's not a contentious piece of state. You can just execute it.
1: That's exactly right. For Byzantine Fulton consensus, like in the worst case, you're going to have. It's, you're going to have a cost that's basically quadratic in the number of validators. but here everything's linear. You can broadcast to all the validators in parallel. They can get back to you the they sign and get back to you in parallel. Then you just transmit the certificate, they receive those and process them in parallel. So you don't have this quadratic step and uh, it's basically uh, as long as you don't run out of socket,s it's, it's constant and then a, it's a constant cost instead of a because you can just do or send to all validators at the same time.
0: And how are you able to do all that parallelly? Is it the object model?
1: Yeah, so it's the it's the object model because oh, so there's two things that are parallel from the user perspective. Like it's that you can submit to all the valid it's that you can submit to all the validators at once because right you have multiple sockets on your machine and then for the execution because you know these things fundamentally commute. If the validator is sitting on a pile of fifty single under transactions, they don't have to worry about ordering them. They say, hey, I know all these commute. I can just throw them to separate cores. I can do whatever parallelism algorithm I want. It
0: just makes gonna sense. work. Very um, cool. No, I think that's super unique. I. Yeah, the consensus part and not having to do the ordering on everything. Uh, yeah, it's it's very clever.
1: Yeah, so this comes from my co-founder, George, and some other colleagues at Facebook who worked on the system called FastPay, uh, where they were looking at what if we just wanted to do sort of payments only, and we want to make it, we want to do this in the most scalable way possible, and we want it to be horizontally scalable, we throw more machines at the problem, we get more throughput, and we're gonna very much overfit to payments because they're a special kind of transaction that we can make commutative. So what we did with SWE is we took the model of that work, which had this sort of Byzantine system broadcast structure of, you know, Send out the transactions, get the signatures, collect their certificates, and then we figured out how to generalize it to any kind of move code that commutes instead of just payments. Uh, so the this idea, credit for this idea goes to George and Alberto and uh, Matthew, who uh, you know are all the stuff at Facebook. Um,
0: That's awesome. Um, any, maybe we can come back to uh the consensus i do i do ultimately kind of want to touch upon like the dag versus uh like the more traditional blockchain architecture maybe we can just go into that now and then we'll hit like uh the execution environment next
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe we can, so I talked about the consensus when we skip consensus. I do want to talk about improvements in the actual consensus algorithm too. And then that'll inevitably lead us into the the DAG bit too, because I think the execution is where the DAG comes in. So then in consensus itself, like we, we use this novel tusk thing. Um, And then, so the inside of that, I'm not a consensus expert, so I'm going to do my best to channel the the key parts, but you know, you should definitely talk to George or Alberto or one of our other pros. So in consensus, there are basically two things that validators are doing. One is there are two problems that they're solving. One is a data availability problem of getting everyone on the same page of what are the transactions that we're trying to agree on the order of. And then the other one is actually ordering them. And in conventional consensus algorithms, these things go together. Like you're doing this sort of n squared thing and you're solving both, you're both uh, disseminating the transactions, the first problem, and doing the ordering at the same time. But the insight of Narwhal Tusk is that, well, these are separate problems and you can do them separately. You can do the dissemination. Which can be done, which is cheap and can be done in parallel, and then you can get everyone on the same page of okay, what transaction we're we going to be agreeing on, and then you do the ordering, not on the transactions themselves, but on sort of fixed-size references into a table of transactions that you know everyone has. And so this is how Narwhal test does it. It has this phase of disseminating the transactions, getting everyone to agree on them, and then it does an order, and then it does the ordering, the very expensive part, of the ordering, uh, just on these fixed-size references, and then so it splits this this big n-squared problem into a smaller O of n problem and then uh, the n-squared problem that's there fundamentally. So that ends up uh, performing a lot better than conventional consensus algorithms. Uh, so there too. So we have, the way we like to think of it is we skip consensus when we, so we don't need it, and then when you need ordering, you use normal test, which is going to be better than conventional consensus algorithms in a number of ways.
0: So if you're skipping the traditional ordering, it's linear or uh, constant.
1: So it's sort of like an engineering thing. You have to it, like it's linear in the sense that you have to submit your transaction to two of plus one validators by stake. So Like that, that cost is going to go up, but because that can be done in parallel, it's essentially constant. Like the like if in the FastPay paper, you look at how the latency changes when you add more validators, and it doesn't change. Um, and of course, throughput always goes down when you add more validators, but then you add more machines within the validator, it can go back up.
0: Interesting. And then maybe to like, can we like break apart Narwhal and Tusk a little bit more? Because I do think they're relatively new and I think people have a lot of questions. Uh, So uh, maybe start like uh, like the data dissemination and decoupling from like the ordering mechanism. I mean, I think you kind of just explained it, but uh, maybe just going a little bit further on that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, the reason that we say Narwhal and Tusk is that Narwhal is the dissemination algorithm, and that part is that part is sort of the the same order of view. And then Tusk is a consensus algorithm that sits on top of it. But you you don't necessarily need to use Tusk with Narwhal. You can also use Hot Stuff and they do that in the paper. Or in SWE, so we're actually using Bullshark, uh, which is a, a successor of Tusk. And so basically, like there are many different ways you can decide on the ordering, and it just sort of depends on like these trade offs that you think about in conventional consensus algorithms. With do I care more about having good average case behavior versus good worst case behavior. Do I have primitives like a common coin to rely on to choose the leader? Or am I okay with having a deterministic leader election algorithm and the sort of DDoS attack vectors that come with that? And so it's sort of a framework. The narwhal is, is always there, but then what consensus algorithm you put on top of it, it's sort of parametric in that and you can make many different choices. Uh, and we're, we're choosing Bullshark for now.
0: Gotcha. Maybe to back up a little bit, uh, I was at the Samford conference uh, yesterday or- Yeah, yesterday. Feels like forever ago. Uh, But they were talking about how important transaction ordering really is um, and kind of going through the different processes of uh, what that affects. Uh, Taking that step back, why is transaction ordering so important? And then how maybe going in after that, how like Bullshark is uh, ultimately a very effective way to do so?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think it's important for a number of different reasons. I mean, first is that just like many use cases require, like we talked before about the decks and the auction or other things like, you know, many, many important kinds of computations, especially like financial stuff that goes on blockchains, like you're going to need ordering. And then the other thing is that who gets to decide the ordering, uh, you know, gives, depending on how the design works and almost all designs we know of, gives the chooser a lot of power to extract MEV uh, to do things that are unfair and also to you know, ordering also gives you the idea potentially uh, to gives you the ability to to sense of transactions or delay them or do this other thing. So you have a lot of so you have a lot of power in that. And so we we're concerned mostly with trying to we're concerned mostly with the efficiency points. Uh, I think we're not trying to break new ground in terms of. Some of the MEV prevention you see elsewhere by like ordering encrypted transactions and then decrypting them after the fact although this is the sort of thing we may consider in the future uh we're trying to get off the ground with solving the throughput problem and then we'll, we'll we'll see about these things later but i think like that this is why ordering is important because it's the the most core part of one of the most core things that a blockchain does yeah and then uh bullshark yeah bullshark so with with Tusk, um, it works well. The leader election in Tusk works well when you have this common coin, uh, which is like you know a trusted source of randomization. This is a tricky cryptographic problem that Costas, uh, who you'll talk to next, and uh, some other folks are were, were having are working on solving and baking into Sui. But we don't want to we don't want to gate a safe leader election on that. We want to be able to do something else in the meantime. So again, I'm not a consensus expert, so I'm gonna uh, butcher the the explanation of what goes well here. But my understanding is that. Bull has a safer and more performant leader election so leader election scheme than Tusk does without requiring this common coin component, and so it may be something where we switch in the future once we have that primitive to work with, or we stick with Bull Shark. Uh, this is just what we're what we're doing for now.
0: Interesting, very cool. And maybe kind of jumping off all this, how does kind of. Uh, Sui and the DAG kind of operate versus like a more traditional blockchain architecture and like what benefits does the DAG bring?
1: Yeah, so... One of the benefits, so right, when we talk about a DAG, we're talking about like you can have a linear order on transactions, which is what you conventionally do, or if transactions explicitly specify their dependencies as they do in SWE, you don't actually ever need to linearize anything. Like you have a you have a partial order there, you can transactions uh, and you which is equivalent to a DAG, like transactions have edges between them if there's a dependency, but then transactions can also be incomparable in their ordering. So this lets you do a couple of different things. So one is to choose different consensus, like you know fast consent like skipping consensus uh or going to full consensus as we talked about and then of course in execution this matters a lot too because if you know what transactions can potentially conflict that helps you a lot with scheduling if yeah. you see transactions are touching the same object you throw them on the same thread or to the same worker and otherwise you can separate them uh so that it definitely comes into play there but there are lots of other areas as well like in a wallet for example um a big this may seem like it's going off base but it's sort of interesting. You. As a user like you get a request from an app to sign and you don't really know what that request is asking usually it's some like opaque sequence of bytes like maybe you trust the source it came from (laughs) uniswap it came from my discord so it's probably fine but you know sort of the best you can do is either look at the bytes or like maybe you try to simulate the transaction (laughs) but you know that requires fetching state so when you explicitly specify your dependencies you can and then also you have these mutability permissions that move has which maybe we can get into later you can interpret these as transaction permissions, kind of like iOS or Android permissions, where this transaction is asking for permission to read your uh, read your balance and transfer your board ape and you know write some other uh, thing that you have. And this is something that even an ordinary end user can understand. like it's very privileged to ask to transfer something, but it's less privileged to ask to write it uh, and less privileged still to ask to read it. And so when you have the the DAG structure or like the dependency structure explicit in the transaction format that lets you have safer wallets by encoding these transaction permissions. Um, One other area where it makes a difference is uh, a problem with high throughput chains is that you, or at least high throughput chains in the style of say, Sui and Solana is that you're, if you want you to scale up your throughput by adding more machine resources, it's gonna become more expensive to operate a validator. And then if you want full nodes to keep up it's also gonna yes. become more expensive to <laughs> operate a full and so you have to be careful here that you're not creating an oligarchy of like you know it costs millions of dollars to run these things and so the only people who can afford to um to audit the state of the system are people who can also afford to pay millions of dollars but if you have this dag if you have a dag structure and you have explicit Input and you have explicit dependencies between your transactions, then you can do this thing that's like a full node, but called a sparse node, where instead of tracking all the state, yeah, you have some set of addresses or some set of objects that you care about. And basically like you track and re-execute those transactions and track that state, but not everything. And so like your wallet could be a sparse node for all the the coins you have balances in and your NFTs. You can run on like
0: that type of light hardware.
1: Yeah, because it's you're just trying like running a transaction is super super cheap once you have the inputs and then you know you can query the inputs and run stuff. It just gets expensive when you know you're running the the traffic of the entire financial world. But <laughs> yeah. your wallet your wallet already you know it has to store all of the balances all of the balances you own and all of the NFTs you have. So it's just you know running a couple milliseconds of computation. You could do this on a phone. Um, you know the I know bandwidth requirements for that. It's just, it's proportional to however many transactions are touching the state that you care about. Um, So if you're a wallet, like you're sending these transactions uh, and then, so it's just about when someone sends you, say a new coin, like you might want to replay some of the transactions in the history of that coin to see where it's been and make sure it looks okay. Or if you're a game server, you might want to make sure the validators are executing the logic of your game correctly. All of this kind of stuff.
0: Interesting. That's super cool. Um, And that sparse node is uniquely enabled by the, uh, the DAG.
1: By the combination of the DAG and then explicit transaction dependencies, because you need to be able to look at a transaction and see, is this relevant to what I care about without executing it? If you have to execute it? Well, now you execute everything. And then also to be able to identify the dependency structure. Um, without All
0: executing. dependencies in SWE are explicitly stated upfront to help the parallelization or the overall throughput of the network
1: yeah to help i mean basically the state upfront for like all the all the benefits we mentioned it helps with it helps with deciding which consensus path to go through it helps with parallel execution it helps with safer wallets um it's sort of they sort of all go together um, and all is sort of all is sort of a tricky thing um you know this is definitely uh, where it, you you hear that and it sounds like oh this is going to be like this is, this is gonna be very annoying from the developer experience perspective. Like, you know, I have to say, like, uh, you know, I have to give the runtime hints or something. And so we're very careful to set this up in a way that you specify the minimum amount of things you'd have to, to convey the intention of your transaction. Like you specify the name of the smart contract you're calling and the ID of the NFT you're transferring, but nothing else. And the runtime is able to infer the other stuff that you're going to use instead of asking you to specify that. Hmm,
0: huh. neat. Um... Very cool. I maybe touched upon a lot uh, um, on the consensus, maybe. And we've started, I would say, like, to touch upon, like, the execution environment. Uh, But maybe, like go dive deeper into that. Um, I think going forward, it's been interesting just kind of like watching the progression of like blockchains, um, starting as like single threaded, um, and those virtual machines. I'm not personally super optimistic on those. Uh, I think it's very hard to kind of fight physics. Um, and, I think if you have parallel processing, ultimately you can take advantage of modern compute um, and all the benefits that come with that. So I would love to kind of learn more about like the architecture design of your parallel execution environment um, and how that is kind of taking advantage of the more modern compute.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we touched on a little bit, but basically the thing is like when you have static dependency information that just helps you with scheduling a lot because you can basically define it like you see up front what things conflict and you can set up workers. Workers can be threads. Workers can be other machines. And then you send the transactions off to the appropriate place and then they can be executed in parallel and then you take the results and apply them. So that's all pretty easy when it's, on the, when it's on the same machine and when you have one disk. Uh, but for us, like, one of the big challenges that we think about is, okay, if you really want to boost throughput, like, you, know, you can't just add more cores to infinity. Uh, the, those have costs. The, but how do we actually deal with workers that are multiple machines and set it up in a way that the transaction, like the data is, the, the data is sharded, the computation is sharded, but we're minimizing cross shard reads and writes. Um,
0: so are, are you sharding in the execution environment?
1: So we plan to, and it's in the sort of theoretical setup. We plan to launch with a single node architecture just because the amount of the amount of throughput we can squeeze out of a single box is still quite good. We think more than enough for what we're going to have at launch. But we think in the long term, like the demand for block space, especially like um, as the adoption of crypto improves, is only going to increase. And so you have to have an architecture that doesn't just get bound to, OK, this works really well in a single box that has a lot of cores. But now, you know, when my disk fills up or I need more cores, I can't push any more throughput. Uh, or I need to add sharding at the protocol level. We really want a validator to be say, hey, you know, I add one more box in my hosting environment, and you know, now I just get more throughput. And then the the marginal cost of doing that is low, and then I can just keep doing that.
0: Would that be like application specific, or just more network wide?
1: uh more more network-wide the we really want this to be we call this intra-validator sharding like it's an implementation detail of how a validator is set up and like you know and not that's that's opaque to other users and to other validators uh we really think that's important for developer experience comparing to putting sharding at the protocol level where now you have both like developers and users worrying about things like cross-shard transactions seeing the price difference seeing the latency difference Um, already blockchain programming is very very challenging and we think like the experience where you have this illusion of all the assets in the world are in one place and like they're just a function call away from you and you have an atomic lock on all of them when you're executing a transaction like that's what smart contracts are are about. That's what we know is valuable. I totally and agree. These other things may be valuable, too, but like we really want to preserve that. And we think we have the, the architecture to do in the Web2 way like, you know, I have I have a sharded store and I have some transaction that needs to write to a bunch of different machines, like this is a hard problem, but it's also a problem you can hire folks from Amazon and Facebook and Google to solve. Uh,
0: so how do you solve that problem with like the latency and like the cross shard communication if, uh, or the, with intra shard?
1: Yeah, I mean, so that's, what, that's one of the challenges here where if it's on a single box, like there's no latency for communications for other machines in the validator cluster. But as soon as you, uh, as soon as you have multiple machines in the cluster, then there is. So you have to be very smart about locating, like knowing which transactions are likely to touch the same data and try to try to set it up so that in the common case, it's all on the same machine. And so you can send a transaction there and it acts the same as if you had a single node architecture. There's always going to be these edge cases where, you know, someone's trying, someone knows your algorithm and they're trying to trick you or you just set things up wrong. But also because it's not the protocol, like you can provision it dynamically. Uh, too, if you're seeing like, oh, I'm really like getting a lot of cross shard rights here. Maybe I need to move this object or maybe I need to set things up differently or like reorganize my ring. These are all like hard engineering problems, but at least a uh, familiar
0: ones for sure. Super interesting. Um, awesome. And then the kind of the last thing that you talked about, I believe, was the storage front.
1: Oh yeah, so I guess I talked about like the, the Merkle tree and like actually applying the effects. So they're like what you want is like like you have a notion of transaction finality and then you want users to be able to read that in a trustless way as quickly as possible. And sort of the traditional way is like you build this Merkle tree and like you you know everyone has the root and then they can the user has the root, so they can read the they can ask for a proof and get the state of their particular account. So this is very convenient, but computing this thing on the critical path for execution is slow. And it really doesn't scale, or we think it really doesn't scale well as you go beyond a single machine and as you get more and more state. And so our principle there is simple: it's just we want to provide authenticated reads without needing to recompute the entire global state route. and then we want to do any bookkeeping, like you know, checkpointing this set of transactions in the ledger, or building a Merkle tree off the critical path for execution. You know, do it asynchronously. The stuff becomes available. You can use it for auditing. Uh, but you also, a user also shouldn't need to wait to that for that to go and spend their money or to take their coffee away or whatever. Yeah. So. The way that works is because of this certificate architecture that we described earlier, um, when you execute a transaction, you, what you get back from a validator is what we call um, transaction effects, um, as you'd expect. So this says, like, these objects came into the transaction. Now, here's what they look like at the end. And here are the objects that were created and deleted by the transaction. And this thing also has two of plus one signatures on it. And it carries the digest of the objects. And so if someone if someone wants to know, hey, what did this transaction do, what's my balance afterward, then, they can get that right after the transaction is executed, without having to wait for this Merkle tree computation or the checkpointing. Um, those only matter for those only matter for someone who's like trying to look at the entire state at once. For a user that just cares about their transaction and their set of transactions, they get back this transaction effects artifact and can read the, and can do authenticated reads immediately. And so. This trick, you know, the, the Solana has done that. Has done off the critical path. I think uh, Aptos has also switched to doing it this way. Like I think most of the new systems are doing it. But the, in the conventional architecture, uh, you do have this Merkle tree computation on the critical path, and that's a that's a big bottleneck.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Very cool. No, I I think, yeah, it's hard to kind of like, I mean, it's been just super interesting to me, like as I said, like watching kind of the virtual machines continue to progress to like parallel processing and multicore core um, for that additional throughput. And then kind of, I've been super fascinated just watching the consensus algorithms develop as well um, and how they've continued to kind of morph over time. How do you feel like out of like the execution environment, consensus, or even just like uh, like data throughput or storage out of those, like, w- do you feel like one is more so potential bottleneck than the
1: others, or are they kind of like equally weighted in your mind? So I think storage is the one where that everyone is going to worry the most about in the future. I think like high throughput systems haven't been around long enough, and also like had the kind of volume that's testing them to really like build up um, yeah. very large amounts of storage. But I believe like once you do, and especially like once you get way beyond the single machine barrier, then all of these sort of engineering problems we described before are going to come up, like either. You've set up your system in a way that it's easy to have a distributed store and hide it inside your validator, or you're going to have to figure out how to do this at the protocol level, and people are going to start to really notice uh, from a programming perspective. But I think like that's really going to be the challenge. Like If you actually have a, transist, a system that's pushing hundreds of thousands of transactions per day, and a lot of that is new object creation, uh, then like you're going to end up with many terabytes of data or, or more quite quickly. And then especially like the impact on full nodes, I think is the thing where you'll feel at first, like validators have the incentives to add more resources and be able to store that stuff. But then like we'll see a system that starts off kind of decentralized in terms of having a lot of full nodes. And then as the, the disks get full and the throughput goes up, uh, the, that gets less so. So we're we're very concerned about having the the sparse node architecture to prevent that out of the gate. But I think like that the storage is going to be the or if you ask me to predict that's going to be the big problem for these high throughput chains.
0: Yes, yeah, the storage, especially if you want to like start from genesis, is going to be a lot. Especially if you're doing like I you know gigabytes per second uh, of throughput. That's a it's a lot of data. <clears throat> yeah, and so. I don't know. I I think Solana, like if at a gigabyte, they were predicting somewhat, I may be incorrect, but like four petabytes a year. Yeah. Which is just like the number starts to get very large. And then if you're trying to sync with that data from the beginning, you have to have pretty fast bandwidth uh, to download all that data. Um, But no, very interesting. Um, Yeah. So we kind of touched upon full nodes or I don't know if we touched too much on full nodes. I'm curious, like kind of Learn more about those. Um, like, what do you feel like is going to be the general architecture for those? Are they going to be like mostly CPU or are they going to have high throughput from like the bandwidth standpoint? Um, and then maybe like talk about like more some of the node requirements and the sparse nodes as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think there's anything too unconventional about our full nodes. Um they they operate on this checkpoint artifact that I described, where periodically off the critical path for execution, the validators have a procedure for saying, like, here are all the transactions that have been included since the last checkpoint, you know, the you gather signatures on that. And then you sort of send that you sort of share that publicly so it can go into archival nodes or other entities that are trying to, to audit the system or sort of keep the state of things. And then a full node can grab a checkpoint and it can. Download all the transactions, re-execute them, you know, replicate the state, serve queries, um, help other full nodes get set up, and all of the, and all of these sorts of things. Um, and then they can start from genesis. And then we're, we'll probably have a sort of um, intermediate checkpoint kind of procedure where you, like other folks do, like snap sync, uh, like these other things, where you start from a trusted state and you you speed up from there instead of going all the way back if you want to. And so we anticipate that'll work in the the short term when the throughput isn't too high and the disks aren't too full. Um, and then, of course, like if the cost of, if throughput goes up and the cost of running a validator becomes higher, like the cost of running a full node will also become higher. Like that's just sort of fundamental. There's not so so much that you can do about that, especially if your validators are being very smart about executing things in parallel. Like if they're always sequential, maybe the full nodes can be smarter about discovering good schedules and executing in parallel. But if you're using all those smarts in the validator, the, the full node sort of can't do better. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, that's the full node story where like I think those will always exist. I think like an exchange will always run a full node, for example. Uh, but more and more, like as the costs start to go up, like you'll run a sparse node that tracks the state that's relevant to your application or your addresses or your assets. And then the cost of that will always be proportional to the amount of state you're touching or storing, uh, which is just going to be a lot smaller than all the traffic running through the network.
0: And could you share like any like more specific on like core count or like
1: what like throughput of like bandwidth on the full nodes or sparse nodes? So for for sparse nodes, we don't know yet because we haven't implemented them. Like we're launching with a single node architecture and just full nodes, and like the sparse nodes are more of a, a theoretical design thing that's on our post node roadmap. For 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 full nodes, um, I can't remember what our current recommended architecture is. We have you know we have a blog post where we say like this is what you need for a full node running in a testnet. I'm also I'm not remembering because I'm hesitant to like claim that those will be the final numbers. Like we're going to go through many different ways of testnet. I think we've got some starting requirements and we'll see how this hold up and they may go up or may go down. Uh, but I think it's nothing crazy. Like sort of like you know. Eight cores, like a thirty-two gigs RAM, uh, that kind of range. Um, You know, no, nothing unreasonable or no, no, cra- like no crazy special hardware, like um, like like ASICs or uh, GPUs or anything like Do that. Do you
0: think ultimately the like just because the amount of users onboarding into the ecosystem and because hardware has to increase ultimately to support the increased number of users, that will end up in like FPGAs or ASICs?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't. I don't, I think it really depends on how how specialized and how regular different parts of the the Sui validator and Sui client software are. I mean, right now, like other than hash functions and signatures, like I definitely could see, uh, I mean, the, the ones we're using are already very highly optimized, but you could see like further improvements coming there. Or maybe there are other things we do that are very automatic where it makes sense, where you can... Write the code differently and offload it to a GPU, or you know, it just um, trying to think of like something that move does that could be hardware accelerated. These things will definitely happen if there are things that are bottlenecks and like sort of uh continue to be bottlenecks. Um, but I I don't immediately have any that I would sort of predict like this is something is going to clearly benefit from better hardware from throwing to a different kind of a
0: component. That makes sense. Um, awesome. Uh, maybe we can transition to move. I I think a lot of people are super curious about it. What is Move? Uh, Is it a blockchain? Is it a programming language? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like a lot of people confuse like is move a virtual machine, a programming language, its own blockchain? A lot of people that I talk to just have no idea. Um, so maybe, in your words, kind of explain what Move is uh, and kind of what uh, the goal is of Move. Yeah,
1: it's not. It's not a blockchain. There, <laughs> there is no token. We got our first. Where is the Move token thing? And the this is an alpha leak. It's not yeah. a blockchain. Yeah. I'm uh, shocked. Dude, it, it, it is a programming language. It is a virtual machine. Um, it is. I think the core thing it is. It's a byte co- It's a bytecode. Code format uh, and a bytecode programming language with an associated source language. But really, like when people talk about Move or get excited about Move or like talk about using Move on different platforms, I think it's really about this bytecode language and what it is. I mean, sort of like backing up into like why it was created. Like you know, at at Facebook in 2018, we I was one of the founding engineers in this Libra project, and they the prompt in this project was you know. We're pulling folks from all over the company for the secret global scale blockchain payment network, and uh, they're, we're getting experts in the areas we think are relevant, like distributed systems, like cryptography, um, like payments. And then, like you know, they pulled in me as the programming languages expert, and they're like, you know, there's the smart contracts thing, um, like, take a look at it, like, figure out why they're so insecure, <laughs> and why there's so many hacks, like, figure out, should we take, should we use the existing languages, and build program verifiers and better tooling for them? Should we build a new source language that compiles to the EVM but is better? Should we use a conventional virtual machine like Wasm or uh, the JVM? Or should we come up with our own thing? Like sort of figure out what the like first principles approach. Like look at this, like figure out what this model, like what these things are and like what the ideal way to do it is. And so we took a very careful look and it's like, okay, these are these very unconventional kinds of programs. Like you're not going to write an operating system in a smart contract language. You're not going to write a compiler. Um, you're not going to write like a machine learning. You're, people kind of do now, but like you're probably <laughs> not, you're probably not going to write a, a machine learning classifier. Um, like What these things do is they define shapes of assets. They describe policies for being able to transfer assets and reiterate them. And then they do access control checks. That's basically all they do. It's very sort of domain specific in that way. Mm-hmm. And these are things that... They're simple tasks, but they're they're not really well supported in conventional languages because like there's no notion of scarcity. Like you, When you write X equals Y, that copies Y. You don't want that uh, if Y is a, a coin or an NFT, um, but you really do want that in a smart contract language. And then in a conventional language, there are all these things that you have that you probably don't want in your smart contract language. like. Interfaces, interfaces are great, right? This is how you write like extensible code, but then this is also a way for an attacker to take something that you've written and make assumptions about what it's doing and for them to inject their own code. And that's how you get things like reentrancy vulnerabilities. And so with Move, what we did is we said, okay, like let's take these core concepts that really matter, like the concepts of scarcity, the concept of assets, and then let's design a language that just has those and then has like no dynamic behavior or things that are hard to reason about. And let's have that as the foundation for a smart contract language. And so that's what Move is. It's a bytecode language that has this built-in notion of assets of scarcity. And I mean, like user-defined assets, where it's like you do, you write an arbitrary struct with whatever fields you want, and then you say this thing can be copyable or not, and this thing can be sort of dropped on the floor without being explicitly destructed or not. This thing's allowed to be stored in the global blockchain ledger. This thing's sort of temporary and can only live for the the transaction that defines it. And then it's a bytecode it's a bytecode language that does all these things, and then there's a source code language that's paired to it, there's a compiler that compiles to the bytecode language, and then there's this component called a bytecode verifier that basically checks the same things as a source language compiler does. And we need this because, you know, we don't want to run the compiler on-chain, it's a big, expensive piece of software, and we can't let somebody who just decided to write bytecode manually uh, get around all of our nice guarantees of memory safety and Mm -hmm. asset safety and all this other stuff. So uh, does what the JVM and CLR does, there's this bytecode verifier component. So that's what move is. And the other thing about it is that You know, when I said we're going to put in these core concepts and nothing else, I really mean like nothing else. Like there's not accounts baked in. There's not like cryptography. There's not like the native token of this. There's not even tokens at all. There's not like the token of this chain. We intentionally made it really minimal Mm. so that it can be used in a cross-platform way. We didn't want it to be just use for Libra or DM. It's like, you should be able to take this thing and then you should be able to embed it in whatever blockchain you want and make your decisions for what your transactions are going to look like, what consensus you're going to use, uh, what cryptography you're going to use. Like this is an emerging space. Like people should have all the flexibility they want to try out those new things. And then this is the way you're going to have a language that actually has a meaningful community. It won't be one new language for blockchain. It'll be you build a new blockchain, you use Move, you sort of customize it the way you want, but you use the existing You use the compiler you use the prover you know you use the vm uh you use existing code you can sort of migrate your expertise and so that's this is a sort of a long-winded answer to what is move like that's that's how it came to design move and that's sort of what it's trying to do
0: very interesting now i i think kind of that protections uh especially for engineers that I mean, well, <laughs> I think for every engineer, but uh ultimately uh engineers that are maybe a little bit more hesitant to get into the space, these guarantees are very nice. Um and being able to at least try to minimize the possible attack service uh with this programming language is extremely beneficial. Um no, and it's cool that you guys open source it um and uh allowed uh um multi are kind of not specific to um uh the libra association uh so it's it's very cool
1: yeah i mean i i appreciate that i mean the a programming language's biggest asset is its community like no matter how good it is if it doesn't have a lot of people writing code if it doesn't have a lot of people who are excited about it if it doesn't have a great tool chain then it's just not going to have any value and language language growth is like one of i don't know it's like the hardest problem i know because it's like this combined socio-technical problem where like at, at baseline, like there's never a good reason for creating a new language. Like no matter how good it is, like the network effects of the existing ones are <laughs> are going to overwhelm it. And so like you know if someone says they're going to create a new one, like you should yell at them and say they're crazy and you know <laughs> tell them not to do it. And so like you got to give Facebook a lot of credit for both like being willing to invest in uh, the time and like the the people and the the money it took to create this thing, and then also uh, to be willing to open source and like to give us the leeway to really make it useful. elsewhere. But it's because like they do open source really well and they understand languages and had big successes like React, where it's like, you know, build something, like send, put something out there that gets developers excited. And so um, we had the benefit of that with Move. And for the protections, like, I mean, I totally agree where I think people look at some of these big hacks and they're like, oh, you know, these smart contract developers today, like they're just too careless. And, you know, this will like somehow get solved in the future. But, but I really don't think so. Like mm-hmm. the smart contract developers I know are Really security minded, are really careful, like, you know, deeply understand the platforms they're programming for and like really worried about these things. And this stuff still happens. It's just human fallibility. I don't think it's like an unacceptable carelessness on their part. And when you broaden the space and bring in more programmers, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. It's like, you know, these people don't know as much. So I think this smart contract safety is really an existential threat for the growth of crypto. And I think if we can't expect new developers to be better, the only thing we can really do is bring in better languages, better tooling, uh, you know, bake in more correctness at the base level because people are what they are and they're going to make mistakes. So, um, yeah, I, I really feel that part. No, too. I fully
0: agree. I think. No, I, I definitely agree. Um, what. So I think a lot of people today that may be watching this podcast are like Solidity or EVM base or even Rust. Um, how would you kind of compare and contrast like. Solidity or uh programming in the EVM to like building a application in Rust and versus like Move um and like Move's programming language and like the pros and cons.
1: Yeah. So let me tackle like, this separately like, because I think the answers are somewhat different. So with Solidity in the EVM, like Solidity and the EVM are sort of, or, and the EVM specifically, are the very first effort at like figuring out like what a smart contract language is and what it does. So, like, you got to give them a ton of credit for on their first try came up with something that has really stood the test of time, and you know has is managing hundreds of millions or I guess billions of dollars. And you know there like there are some security issues, but like you know the, the thing got the job done for sure. So I think the main advantage Move has is really in being a second mover and looking at what they did, seeing what kind of programs folks are trying to write in the EVM, and seeing what they did that worked well and what doesn't. And so I think the biggest single thing is that if you look at the data model, and this sort of gets back to being like what are smart contracts for, and like being all about assets. There's no notion of an asset in the EVM. You know, the way you represent assets is you have a hash table, and and the keys are addresses, and then the value is you know, a balance, or you know, some bytes that represent the address. And this just makes it really hard to do the kind of things you want to do with smart contracts. Like you want to write code that returns an asset from a function. Well, you actually can't do that. There's no representation of an asset. You want to store an asset in a data structure. You also can't do that. Pass it to a function. Also can't do that. There's no representation. Like the whole thing is about programming with assets, but there's no vocabulary for describing this. And so you can still do this, but it just ends up being a lot of indirection where instead of, Passing instead of transferring a coin by sort of passing it from one function to another, you call a function that decrements here and a function that increments there and you try to make sure nothing else happens in the meantime. And so I think it's just the wrong level. Well, it's the wrong vocabulary and then the wrong level of abstraction for what folks are trying to do. I think the other thing, and this is related to the assets, is that in conventional programming, abstraction is all about types. Like. I define some types, I have some associated functionality, and then you pick up my types um, and you build on them, and then someone else builds on them, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, you can say new web server, and that and that just works and no one has to know what goes on underneath. But if you don't have types that can be reused across trust boundaries, and in the EVM you don't, like, you know, you have types in your local contract, but you only communicate via raw bytes across contract boundaries, then you can't do type-based abstraction. And so your code in the code ecosystem is just like a bunch of actors who sort of communicate via message passing, but it's very hard to build these towers abstraction that we use to design complex applications um, in, the, in conventional programming. And with Move, you can do that. Uh, because of the bytecode verifier, you can write some types, you enforce some invariance on them. It flows into some attacker who wants really badly to steal your money, but they, they can't. Like, the, it's set up so that they can't get inside your types and they can't violate your invariance. And so that lets you do the thing that you're used to doing, which is type-based abstraction and building large and complex applications.
0: Nice. Maybe I think I mean obviously like we're definitely in the weeds by now. Um, maybe kind of on a higher level, kind of explain what the bike code verifier does and why that's so significant um, to like the average day person.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's easiest to start with a concrete example for this, so, like let's say you you're defining a module and you're defining your own nft type and you know you give it some fields and you know you want to have a policy like this has a counter field and only you're going to be allowed to increment it okay so now you have that type and you pass it into some other code so the the question is what stops them from being able to just do whatever they want with it it's it's bytes is on their code and they have full they have full dominion over uh what's in there and so you have to make sure that they can't do that so just to give let me back up and change the example a little bit. Where let's say like the the hard one is I think you have you've defined your NFT you've defined this NFT and you really don't want someone to be able to copy it because you know there's supposed to be a thousand additions. and if you can copy it in your code then uh, then that would be bad. Mm-hmm. Well, there like you know, copy is an operation to move. We have integers and you know when you say let x equals seven and let y equals x then you should just copy that. And so you what the verifier does is that you import the type into to your module and so you know it would be Logan's NFT and then you write something and then you would. And then when you import the type, you say what abilities it has. And the abilities are things like uh, the ability to copy, the ability to store in the global blockchain state, the ability to, to drop without using a uh, destructor. And so the verifier will check if you copy something, does it actually have the copy ability? And so the, you get that check there. And then also when you do the import, there's a linker that says, hey, I'll look at the type of definition in the original module. And if you tell me you've imported it with copy, but it doesn't have it, it's also going to slap you on the wrist there. So what it does is it lets you it lets the programmer define types, define policies on who can write the, who can write its fields, who can read them, whether they can do operations like copying, like dropping, like putting the global storage, and then those local invariants in your module become global invariants, even as your types flow out of your module uh, and are used by code, including untrusted code. So it just gives you a very strong bill of rights as a programmer. And then you also know that other people have to respect that. Um, and then so like, you know, you have this strong isolation, but you also have a lot of expressivity in terms of being able to share code and share objects. Nice.
0: No, I I think it's 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 very unique. Um and I, I it's definitely a, I mean, it's unique today, but I think going forward it's a necessity. Um and I'm glad that uh the Facebook or Meta ultimately has allowed kind of the open source and it to be used by everybody. So I, I'm super curious to see the general adoption uh over the long term.
1: Yeah, me too. I mean, we're off to a good start with there's, I think, four different move-based chains now. There's Starcoin, which is actually the first one, launched almost two years ago at this point. Uh, there's OL, which is this permissionless Libra fork. Uh, then there'll be Aptos and then there'll be Sui. Then there's a lot of existing chains that want to incorporate move as sort of a second language or a different layer. And then I think there are new chains too that are very curious about using it. But it's designed to have this, we sort of call it embedded architecture where you you take the VM and then you sort of plug in your transaction format and accounts. And then you just go to town you can do things in a very different way, but still, still use it all. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. The JavaScript of web three is sort of how we pitch it and not in terms of language design, but in terms of like, if you're going to write code that uh, runs smart contracts on blockchains, then that should be moved. Just like if you're writing code that interacts with the DOM, that's JavaScript. Uh, That's, that's what we'd like to see.
0: Nice. And how would you, we touched upon the EVM and Solidity. How would you compare it to like just more generally Rust?
1: Yeah, so this is this question is always a little bit uh, puzzling to me. Like when I started at uh, at Brown, was like, you know, what should we use? My as a smart contract language, my first thing is like, yeah, we should use Rust because you know um, it has these affine types that look a lot like what the the moves resource that moves resource types are. You know, it's got this nice borrow checker. It's got a lot of safety built in. Um, it's a language developers love. You know, that was sort of my first thought. But then the problem there is that. Rust is not an executable language. Rust is a source language that compiles through LLVM to machine code. you can't deploy machine code directly on the blockchain because then the attacker is going to publish machine code that goes around. And so basically the problem is that all of Rust guarantees are checked at the source level. So if you want them, you have to go through the Rust compiler, but you do not want to run the Rust compiler on chain. It's going to be too expensive. It won't be deterministic and all these sorts of things. What you want is something that's Rust-like, but enforces Rust guarantees. At, on an executable representation, and that's basically what Move is trying to do. And so, if you have something like where people are like, "Oh, I write smart contracts in Rust uh, on Solana," you're not actually using Rust there. Like, you're using a Solana SDK that's embedded in Rust, and then there are lots of Rust things that you're not allowed to do. Uh, like, if you try to do something non-deterministic, uh, hopefully the the Solana compiler or the Rust compiler in the Solana SDK is not going to let you do it. Um, and similar. So, like, I think Rust can be a nice language if you're going to host an SDK for some blockchain language, whether it be uh, whether it be Solana or CosmWasm or something. But Rust is not itself a smart contract programming language. It's missing a lot of things that smart contracts need, like gas metering, like accounts, uh, like coins. And then it also has a lot of stuff like concurrency uh, and non-determinism that you don't want or can't have in your smart contract language.
0: Makes sense. Awesome. Um, cool. We've been chatting about 50 minutes. Uh, maybe kind of on some of like the overall architecture design choices, uh, why not include a layer two or do sharding or application specific chains? I think uh, as, I mean, the entire industry is kind of moving towards that. I mean, except for the exception of like, I think Solana, Sui and Aptos, Um, why like, what are your kind of your general thoughts on like that direction? And then uh, why have you chosen to go in another direction?
1: So I think it is just Sui and Solana that stand alone in this regard. I think in Aptos' recent white paper, they said that they're going the direction of uh, of sharding. And it's sort of, it's more of like an uh, like ETH2 style design. where all, well, no, sorry. It's a opinion design where like all the subchains are moved and it's sort of like one paragraph. So you don't see all the details, but definitely like the things like yeah, there, there are going to be shards, and it's a inter-validator sharding in contrast to inter-validator sharding, as we are describing our model, where you see it at the protocol level. Programmers have to program against it. Users are aware of it. Uh, as you said, like a sort of the broader trend, although there are many different flavors of this. Mm-hmm. So the reasons why, and I think we touched on this earlier, is just we think this is the best developer experience. We think this is the best user experience, and we think it's possible to implement the system in a way that you can provide it. Like, um, I'm repeating myself, but I think it's important to say we're... I think like the value we've seen for blockchain so far is all about like taking things that lived in these siloed areas, like your bank and my bank, or, you know, even like you and me as people who have our own money and then just knocking down those walls and putting them, putting the state in the same place and giving you a programming environment where you can touch these things at the same time and you can interact atomically. Yeah. And that you can do this both as a programmer and as a user where like this happens quickly and you know, you don't notice like that it takes more time to send because my bank is on a different chart than your bank and, and that kind of stuff. So really, like we think like this is the gold standard to aim for as far as that developer experience and user experience. And so that's what we aim for in our design. And it's really as simple as that. Like I think if you think that's if you think it's impossible to achieve that, then I think like, yes, you should try to do L2s, you should try to do app chains, like you should try to do like uh intervalidator sharding. Like, you know, the this stuff is important, like all this can work. But I think like I view that as a compromise that you go for after you can't get the base layer to scale anymore. Because I think as much as you can. Preserve atomic composability, you should try to do it. So I think it really doesn't go any further than that. Uh, I guess maybe we're just more optimistic than other folks. So.
0: I, I mean, I fully agree. I, I think one of my kind of hesitancies about those other design choices is that we're nowhere near like the fundamental limitations of like how much you can actually push like a single architecture design uh, before like doing like layer twos or sharding and all that. And the fact that we're like kind of just barely scratching the surface and already exploring those trade offs. I'm not as much of a fan. And so I very much appreciate um, what you're building here with SWE and, and uh, at Mists and Labs. Uh, I think ultimately, from the product point of view, uh, people appreciate all those uh, complexities being removed. Uh, one from an engineering point of view, but also from an actual like user standpoint. And any of those complexities that can be removed and kind of uh, hidden behind the scenes is very important.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And to be clear, like, there's nothing that stops you from implementing layer twos on top of SWE. And, you know, maybe there there may be reasons to do that because, like, maybe you're going to have some private state in your layer 2 and like you know that's not supported in the native layer in Sui, so you do that or you know maybe there are certain things that end up being too expensive so you put them in a layer 2 like i you know i fully expect that stuff can you know uh, i think Anatoly has an interesting point of view on this too where it's like yeah sure like you can have layer 2s there will be on Solana but like you know let's just not bank on that assumption i think i think we're very similar there it's like you don't want to keep these things out but it's just you know you as a protocol designer want to focus on scaling your protocol the base layer and then people are going to build these secondary layers as they need to
0: that totally makes sense Awesome. Um, hmm. Is there any kind of like thoughts or expectations on like the raw like data throughput
1: between nodes? Um, like one megabyte, 10 megabytes? I think it's just really hard to know that without having an idea of what the validator account is going to be, what the topology is going to be, like what the sort of workload is going to be. I really hope like we can get to a point where we have some like performance bottlenecks that are more, sorry, performance uh, benchmarks that are more interesting than payments and that take those things into account so we can actually have more apples to apples comparisons of networks in the future. But for now, it's like, you know, people are just like, what's the TPS going to be? It's like, man, I need to know like 20 more things before yeah. I can answer that
0: question. Yeah. <laughs> Um, awesome. Uh, maybe like, what are your kind of like thoughts, comments, or like words of wisdoms that you would like to impart on like developers or people that are looking to learn more? I mean, uh, kind of about building in the SWE ecosystem.
1: Yeah, I think I would take a look and just try to understand the things that are different about SWE, Like, try to understand these different, like the fast path where you skip consensus and then the ordinary consensus. Just look at look at what's different, what's sweet and what's move and look what and look what's enabled there that doesn't happen elsewhere. I think we get a lot of folks coming in and saying something like, you know, where it, like, you know, where is ERC721? And then it's like, well, yes, like you can do this, but you can also like uh, you also get a lot of that stuff built in because every object has a built-in unique ID. Every object has a built-in ability to transfer. So don't ask where the standards are. Ask like what you want to create from an NFT perspective, and then you know, you know, add custom fields. You know, do those sorts of things. So I think it's just you know, back off the back off the limitations and really think like what is interesting from a use case perspective. Like for me, in terms of the product I'm building, what do I want to create, and then figure out like where can sweet help with that. And the, I think this is very generic advice, but I think like we're so used to you know, thinking in the way one platform, one platform's design sort of has you think and the the limitations and advantages of that. And Sweeve, like as we've been talking about, is very different in a number of ways. So I think like taking the broad perspective and we're trying to help with that too. So folks don't have to become a, a Sweave consensus expert or move expert to see that, but just show you like, here, here are some interesting things you can do or like the way you do the same thing differently, but then add on this feature or that kind of stuff just so people can digest that. But I think like just taking the taking the blue sky view is the, the biggest piece of advice I would give.
0: Awesome. And you touched upon one thing that I don't think we uh or i brought up initially maybe going a little bit more into just like the object oriented model of sui because i think they're unique in that architecture design and kind of what that enables i think we've kind of touched upon it broadly across the board but maybe just go uh slightly deeper into that
1: yeah totally because i think it's this is something you'll definitely run into from either a programmer perspective or end user perspective where in suite, there are their addresses as there are elsewhere, but there aren't like a, there, there aren't accounts like where we talk about being object-centric, where the global storage is organized as a map from object ID to objects, and then every object has this globally unique ID, and then it has this ownership metadata at work and says like the address that owns it or that it's shared uh, or something else. And then the other thing is in an object is basically arbitrary move data. Like an object will have a type, it'll say, This is a coin, or this is an NFT, or this is a dex, and then it has the, the fields of whatever, you know, whatever you typed when you typed struct s, and then, you know, x, u64, bbool, whatever whatever else went in there that will go into the object. Um, and so when you write your code, you say, here's an entry point function, here's the object types that's gonna take as input, and then you just write the logic that says, oh, I'm gonna update this one, I'm gonna transfer this one to some address I got as the input, and maybe I'll create another one and give it to somewhere else. So it ends up having this very sort of uh, tactile flavor where it's just like, you know, I'm I'm in this room and I've got all these objects and you know I run around and do things with them and then once all the objects disappear my transaction's over and that's and that's sort of how it works.
0: Okay, very cool. No, I I I think it's some a unique uh, thing that you guys are doing uh, and I'm excited to kind of see how uh, ultimately. Uh, developers end up using it, um, and also just kind of all the unique properties that it enables. Um, I think we touched upon composability as well, but it uh, definitely helps with that. Correct?
1: Yeah, I think so. Like we think a lot about like don't just uh, don't just have a, a standard that rigidly defines how you do things, but like have various building blocks that can be composed to you know put different pieces of functionality together in a way that doesn't dictate a choice for one thing or the other. Like instead of having one NFT standard that says, here's how royalties are gonna work and here's how listing on a marketplace is gonna work and here's how the unique ID works and here's how you know a URL, an image URL works or something. Instead, maybe you have something like here, like here's something called like royalty of tea and like someone can define their own royalty policy and then stick that inside the NFT or not if they don't want royalties and maybe they, and the unique IDs that are built into the objects, so you don't have to like put that in the standard, it's just there by default. And then for something like listing, like maybe different marketplaces would do this in a different way. So there's sort of utility modules with generics that different folks can use to instantiate that in one way or another, but not something that folks have to agree on in a top-down fashion. Like in general, or one of the ways I think about composability is that if you can coordinate via code, uh, just like use a type that does something you want and like pick that up and not have to argue or like write in a forum or have like social consensus on it, then like that's always a win. that's easier to coordinate on easier to iterate on and innovate on than having some needing the entire community to agree on one way of, to do something before you can even move forward. So we, we think a lot about that uh, when we think about standards or like the expressivity of move or like how to, to shape things in suite. Well,
0: that's awesome. Well, I think we've kind of gone through all my kind of high level questions and uh, kind of in the granularity. Is there anything that you particularly want to touch upon or
1: things that I miss out on? I think you've asked a great set of questions, Logan. You really uh, kicked all the right tires, and uh, it's been a fun conversation for me, so I I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, and uh, thank you so much, Sam. I've been really looking forward to uh, this conversation and kind of peeling back all the layers and uh, getting into the nitty-gritty. So thank you very much. I really appreciate your time.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Awesome.